this is me. July 29th, 2008. It is 1233 Mountain Time. Um, covering all my bases, making sure that if something happens to me or my family or all of us that our assets are documented. Hope everything works out and we're all happy and live happily ever after as much as that's possible. Charlie. Say hi. Did you kill your wife? No. What is the truth? People who know me know that I'm a good dad. I work hard. I put my sons first. I was a good husband. I took care of my family. And I see you're still wearing your wedding band. Yeah. You still love her? Yeah. I guess you could say that I still love her. Love her. Here's an old story I'm sure you've heard a million times. Right, so it goes something like this. So basically the wife disappears while the husband is gone on an impromptu camping trip with his four and two year old boys in the middle of the night in the desert of Utah during a blizzard. Right, same old, same old. Sometimes it's just hard to find weird cases. But the story of Susan Powell is definitely that. It's also complex, disturbing, and tragically short. Her life was one filled with more demons than any one person should ever have to face. And today, we're gonna do our best to untangle this crazy web of lies that is the life and death of Susan Powell. I'm your host, Michael, and this is Strange and Unexplained. So let's go back to September of 2000, when Susan was 19 years old. She met 22-year-old Josh Powell at a singles church service, and she was immediately infatuated with him. The two were members of the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints. They had both been raised in church, but Josh had previously denounced all religious beliefs and was only recently coming back around to religion after trying to make amends with his mother, who he was estranged with after his parents' divorce. Josh resented the church and blamed it for his parents' separation, as it was a common subject of the couple's many marital disputes. Josh's upbringing was not typical, and he suffered from abuse, both psycho and psychological torture, at the hands of his sadistic father, Steve Powell, Susan's soon-to-be father-in-law. Josh was troubled as a child due to the fact that his parents went through a nasty divorce and sometimes Steve Powell used the children against his wife in order to keep control over her. When they finally split, the oldest boys went to live with Steve and were basically allowed to do what they wanted. So, so Josh grew up knowing no boundaries and having a very skewed and twisted view of how relationships work. 
as his father encouraged him and his other brothers to physically abuse their mother. After some time, Josh would move out of his father's home and eventually try to make amends with his mother by attending church, where he met Susan. The couple would marry just months after meeting, and unfortunately for the couple, they were unable to afford living on their own and were forced to move in with Steve and Josh's siblings. The house was crowded, with so many people living there, so turmoil grew quickly in an already unbalanced household. Steve, Josh's father, also harbored a secret that would drive a wedge between him and his son. And that secret was that he was in love with his daughter-in-law. Steve and his boys were known for always being around with a camera or recorder or, some, or something of that kind and often kept video or voice diaries in addition to their written diaries. The Church of Latter-day Saints encourages its members to keep personal journals daily, so all of the Powell's personal journals ended up revealing so much as this case unfolded, as you could imagine. It came to light through Steve's own personal collection that while Josh and Susan were living with him, he was secretly recording and photographing Susan. He even went as far as to sneak into her dirty laundry basket to smell her scent on her dirty underwear, and he kept hair and toenail clippings of hers as well. He would also steal pantyhose from her drawers and replace them so she didn't know that he was a very disturbed sexual predator who was quickly becoming quite obsessed with her. This only got worse when Steve confessed to Susan that he was in love with her and had sexual fantasies about her. Ha, huh, imagine that. Susan rejected her father-in-law's advances and told him it was inappropriate. Steve had somehow at this point become delusional. He believed that Susan was in love with him and felt the same way he did, but was afraid to upset her husband. He even journaled about how maybe he and Josh could share Susan. Eventually, the couple moved out and went from the small suburb in Washington State to a desert town called West Valley City, Utah. However, Josh kept regular contact with his father even after the falling out, and even with the objections from Susan, who was now thoroughly creeped out by Steve. In Utah, things started looking up for Susan. She got a job at the local Wells Fargo and bought the couple a house. But Josh still seemed to struggle, as he was unable to hang on to a job very long. This was nothing new. In fact, Josh's ex-girlfriend is still paying on student loans that he encouraged her to take out, then he stole the check from her. He was known to spend money even when he didn't have it, opening and running up credit lines, and then declaring bankruptcy. Shortly after moving to Utah, the two had their first son, Charlie, in 2005, followed by their second son, Braden, in 2007. The couple by all means appeared happy and normal to those around them, but it was far from the perfect home life. Susan would eventually tire of Josh's slothfulness and was growing restless in being the homemaker and breadwinner, while her husband spent all her money and contributed nothing. Yeah, man, it's crazy that a relationship like that wouldn't work, right? It was also odd to those who knew the couple that Josh had stopped showing interest in Susan physically. This is not shocking, as Josh's sexual proclivities were far from the norm. Growing up, Josh's dad, Steve, would share pornography with him and his brothers and encourage them to rebel against the church just as a means to get back at his ex-wife. As she continued to stay devout in her religious beliefs, and also stayed a patron of the church, 
even through the divorce. In July of 2008, the couple's marriage was on its last leg. Although she had tried everything to keep her marriage together, it was still failing. Talking about Susan and Josh. So Susan went to see a divorce lawyer on the advice of a friend, and the lawyer suggested documenting all her assets in video form. And so she did. There's like a 12-minute video on YouTube of her going through everything that they own in case of emergency, theft, or family dispute. So it was... It's obvious, I played you a short clip at the beginning as well. That is the beginning of that video. Susan is getting ready to go through all of their belongings. So that video, which now seems ominous and foreshadowing, revealed that Susan really was afraid of something happening to her. She stored this video along with a handwritten will and testament and a few savings bonds in a security box at the bank she worked at. She knew it would be safe from Josh there. The will spoke of how Josh had taken a million-dollar life insurance policy out on Susan and had made threats to her weeks before when she mentioned getting a divorce. In this last will, Susan talked about how, quote, if anything happened to her, it was probably not an accident, even if it looks like one, end quote. Also, another quote, please take care of my boys, end quote. Um, yeah, I'd say when anytime someone writes those two things, if anything happens to me, it's not an accident and take care of my children. Um, this is definitely a woman who feels like her life could come to an end rather soon. All of this would culminate in December of 2009. The last person to see Susan alive was an elder of her church who was teaching Susan to knit. She had come over to help Susan and noticed odd behavior from Josh. Firstly, that he made them dinner, which was something that Josh never did. And he started this dinner by calling Steve, apparently to get a recipe for pancakes. He then went into the kitchen and fixed a plate for their guest and Susan and brought them into the living room. He fixed him and the boys some, and they ate together at the table. Shortly after finishing, Susan laid down on the couch saying she didn't feel well. Their guest, who was still there, was to leave. She talked about in her journals how Josh had the boys in the van and pulled out of the driveway before she was even able to get her seatbelt on. This was Sunday evening. The next day, when Susan didn't show up to drop the boys off at daycare, the workers at the daycare attempted to contact both Susan and Josh with no response from either. The house was just down the road from the daycare, so one of the workers drove over to the pal's house. The night before, a blanket of fresh snow had fallen on West Valley, and the daycare worker noticed there were no tracks leaving the pow driveway and figured they were still at home. She walked up on the porch and made several attempts to get someone in the house to answer. After nothing happened, she began to fear the worst. So she called Susan's emergency contact, who was Josh's older sister, Jenny. Jenny and Susan had always hit it off, mainly because they had a mutual distrust of Steve Powell. Jenny attempted to call both Josh and Susan one more time, and after being unable to reach them, they called the police. Police arrived, and the concerned parties explained to them how they feared a gas leak may have occurred, as the pals were suspected at home but not responding to any attempt to contact them. The police broke in the front window and immediately noticed something odd. Even though there was a blizzard outside, there were three box fans 
turned on, facing the couch. They also noticed that Susan's purse, including her keys, were still at the house. When they checked the garage, they realized that the pal's minivan was not there. Eventually, Josh returned his sister's many phone calls and acted very odd. When she got him on the phone, a sigh of relief came over her, but was followed shortly by a new feeling of despair. Josh told Jenny that he had taken the boys out last night after 12, midnight, on a spontaneous camping trip in the middle of the unseasonably cold weather. Josh had apparently forgotten that it was Sunday night and made a phone call to Susan's phone saying he was returning home after realizing he was supposed to be at work Monday morning. When asked where Susan was, Josh said he didn't know, only that he had left the house last night and she had stayed home. Josh finally arrived home with Charlie and Braden in tow. Susan was still missing. The police asked Josh to come down to the station for an interview. And when they left, Josh immediately took to randomly cleaning the house, along with the family's minivan. Just randomly, you know, just doing his duties. When Josh did finally make it to the station, he again had the boys in tow, and detectives could clearly see he was using them to avoid questioning. When they did get Josh alone and questioned him about his wife's whereabouts, he had surprising little, little information to hand over and eventually evoked his right to remain silent. When the attention was shifted to him as a suspect, he could offer the police no clues as to where to look for her or anywhere she could have gone. He also couldn't remember what he and Susan had done the night before. Yeah, that's right. When asked about the events that led up to the spontaneous camping trip, Josh replied with, quote, I don't know what we did. That's right. Nothing. Nothing. No clues. The night before, when you had a guest and you cooked dinner uh, for the first time in your life, apparently. So, Charlie, Pal's oldest son, who was four at the time, was questioned and asked about what they had done the night before. Charlie told the social worker he had got on an airplane and went to Dinosaur National Park to camp and that dad and his little brother went, and so did mommy. When asked if mommy came home with them, Charlie said no. Mommy stayed where the crystals are. All right, Charlie. You told me that um, you went camping with your mom, your dad, and your little brother to Dinosaur National Park, right? Yeah. And you said that mommy stayed at the park, right? Yeah. How come mommy stayed? Because it had so much pretty on where it's because it has so much pretty where a crystal grows. It had so many pretty things where the crystals grow? Yeah. So so why did mommy stay? Because there was flowers and crystals that was colorful. That was what? That was colorful. Colorful? Yeah. Yeah? So, did somebody say Mommy wanted to see them, or did you see Mommy say that? Um, what see, What did Mommy say? Um, I see Mommy said that. What did Mommy say? She said she wanted to stay. Mommy said that? Yeah. And so she stayed where the crystals are? Yeah. 
and at night my mom said sleep where of flowers and a crystal glow. Your mom was going to sleep where the flowers and the crystals glow? No, no, grow. Grow. Okay, so your mom was going to sleep where the flowers and the crystals grow? Yeah. Who told you that? Um, my mom. Is that what she told you? Yeah. Did you see where the flowers and the crystals grow? Did you see that place? Yeah. What did it look like? It looked like a whole bunch of red berries. Red berries? Yeah. That's what it looked like. A flower was round and was small, and and there was has to open, and there was some berries that was blue, and there was there was lots of them. Lots of berries. Yeah. And this is when you were camping last night. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. And so mommy said she wanted to stay? Yeah. Yeah? Was mommy happy or sad? Huh? Happy. She was happy? Yeah. Were you happy or were you sad? Um, I, um, last, last night, um, I stayed and I was happy. Where did you stay? Um, I stayed where there was no crystals and where there was lizards that wasn't poison or that wasn't, that didn't have anything bad on them. No bad, nothing bad on the lizards? Yeah. And there was snakes, there was pythons that wasn't in the wild and and there was pythons that live at a dinosaur national okay. park and Charlie do you know why your mommy wanted to stay to see the crystals yeah why cuz they were so pretty <clears throat> cuz they're so pretty yeah okay all right we'll come back out Charlie And of course, contradictory to little Charlie's testimony, Josh denied Susan even going, saying that she was sick and he left her sleeping on the couch the night before. Police were forced to let him go, but not before attaching a GPS to the van. After the questioning was over, Josh drove to the local airport and rented a car. When he returned it later, there was an additional 800 miles on the odometer. Josh returned home and went into his garage and burned an unknown item using a large torch he had purchased the week before Susan disappeared. He laid the item on fireproof drywall and burned it so badly that even the FBI forensic labs couldn't determine what the item was, only that it was made of metal. All of this became apparent when police showed up the next day to take photos of the Powell residence in connection with Susan's disappearance. 
That is when they found the trash bag with burned drywall stuffed in a storage compartment underneath one of the seats in the minivan. It was also then that Susan's cell phone was located, hidden in the van's middle console. On it was the voicemail where Josh talked about him forgetting what day it was. Josh, of course, quickly became a suspect with every day that passed and no sign of Susan. However, the DA refused to sign off on any warrant as there was no body. So Josh was allowed to walk free and had both of his boys with him. Within a month of Susan's disappearance, Josh had packed up the family home and moved back to Washington with his father. Of course, this did not look good for Josh. He already had not shown any interest in participating in search efforts to find Susan. Now he seemed to be fleeing. And of course, Josh and Steve had their own version of what happened, with Steve suggesting that Susan had run off with a local reporter who also went missing around the same time. There were absolutely no connection between Susan and that man. At least no connection was ever found. The man went missing from Henderson, Nevada, and was a member of the Latter-day Saints. That's pretty much all they had in common. Henderson, Nevada, somewhat close to Utah, yes, very close to Utah, and the fact that they're Latter-day Saints, okay, but I just, I think that's a, that's a huge stretch. I don't think these two had any other connections other than that. But Steve was also adamant that Susan was a known flirt and even caused tension between him and his son by coming on to Steve. <laughs> oh my God. So basically, this piece of shit defended himself and portrayed Susan as the town slut who would flirt with anyone after knowing damn well she's gone. Of course, now that the true nature of Stephen Powell has come to light, we know better than to take anything he says as truth. Steve and Josh's Washington home was eventually searched. And here is where the truth behind the pals started to come to light. Police found boxes containing all journals. Steve had kept over the years, along with hundreds of photos of women and young girls that appeared to be taken without consent. This would end up landing Steve in jail for two years on charges of voyeurism and child pornography. Steve had been caught taking photos of little girls across the street while they were in the bathroom. He had also done this to Susan while she was living with them. He was disturbing, twisted, and sadistic. These words do not do justice, even to the things that Steve wrote and discussed in his personal journals. In one instance, he even described how he started feeling sexually attracted to his own daughter when she was only about 13 years old. It was clear that Steve was a mentally ill person, but still unclear if he had any involvement in Susan's disappearance. Now, real quick, the mentioning about his daughter and having the attraction towards her, his daughter, you remember her, Jenny, who is a good friend of Susan's because of their mutual hatred for Steve. Okay, if you didn't put that together earlier, she hates her own father. Okay, and if he was attracted to her at 13, I don't have to say what could have happened in that house, allegedly. I'm not saying it did. I'm just saying she probably has good reason to hate her father. So, it was clear that Steve was mentally ill. He wrote in his diary that he feared Susan was gone and knew Josh's hands were, quote, not clean, but never revealed any clue as to what happened. 
After Stephen's actions came to light, Josh lost custody of the children as they were seen to be in imminent danger staying in the house with these men. Josh was seen as a subject in Steve's pornography. Custody of the boys fell to the Cox family, Susan's parents. Josh was allowed weekly supervised visits with the boys. Then on February 5th, 2012, a social worker picked up the boys at the Cox residence and headed to Josh Powell's house. Unfortunately for her, this is one visit she wished never happened. Elizabeth Griffith Hall pulled up to the house and unbuckled the boys. In their excitement, the boys ran ahead of Miss Hall. They ran up the stairs and into the arms of their dad, who was waiting just inside the door. He hugged them, and Miss Hall heard them say he had a surprise for them as they ran inside. Josh then slammed the door in her face and locked her out. Miss Hall called 911 immediately and explained the situation. Morning. Hey, I'm on a supervised visitation for a court-ordered visit, and something really weird has happened. The kids went into the house, and the parent, the biological parent, whose name is Josh Powell, will not let me in the door. What should I do? What's the address? It's 8119, and I, I think it's 89th. Um, I, I don't know what the address is. Okay. That's pretty important for me to know. Um, sorry, I can't. Just a minute. Let me get in my car and see if I can, if I can find it. Um, this, nothing like this has ever happened before at um, these visitations, so I'm really um, shocked. And I could hear one of the kids crying. But he still wouldn't let me in. Okay, it is uh, one. Oh, just a minute. I have it here. You can't find me by GPS. No. But I think I need help right away. He he's on a very short lease with DSHS, and CPS has been involved. And this is the craziest thing. He looked right at me and closed the door. Are you there? Yes, ma'am. I'm just waiting to know where you are. Okay. It's eight. And I'd like to pull out of the driveway because I smell gasoline and he won't let me in. You want to pull out of the driveway because you smell gasoline, but he won't let I you... Smell... He, he won't let me in. He won't let you out of the driveway? He won't let me in the house. Whose house is it? He's got the kids in the house and he won't let me in. It's a supervised visit. I understand. <laughs> Whose house is it? Josh Powell. Okay, so you don't live there, right? No, I don't. No, okay. I'm contracted to the state to provide supervised visitation. I see. Okay. And, and who is there to exercise their visitation? I am. Uh, and the visit is who? with Josh Powell. And who supervised? And he is the husband that I supervise. So you supervise and you're doing the visit? Yeah, you're I supervise yourself? I supervise myself. I'm the supervisor here. Wait a minute. If it's a supervised visit, you can't supervise yourself. If you're the I visitor. do supervise myself. I'm the supervisor for the supervised visit. Okay, well aren't you the one make aren't you the one making the visit? Or is there another person the that you're supervising? No. There's I'm the one that supervises. I pick up the kids with their grandparents. Yes. And then who visits with the children? Josh Powell. Okay, so you're supposed to be there to supervise Josh Powell's visit with the children. Yes, that's correct. 
How did and he's the husband of missing Susan Powell. How did she, how, this is a high-profile case. How did he? How did he gain access to the children before you got he there? Gra- they, they, I was one step in back of them. Okay, so they he went into the, the house and then he locked you out. Yes, he, okay. he shut the door right in my face. All right, now it's clear. And the kids have been in there by now approximately um, ten minutes. And he knows this is a supervised visit. Two, Brayden is uh, five and Charlie is seven. And the dad's last name? Powell, P-O-W-E-L, L. Two L's? Two L's at the end of Powell? Yes. His first name? His first name is Josh. Black, white, Asian, Hispanic, native? He's white. Date of birth? I don't know. He's about 39. How tall? 5'10", 150 pounds. Hair color? Brown. Did you notice what he was wearing? No, I didn't notice what he was wearing. Is he alone? I don't know. I couldn't get in the house. Are you in a vehicle now or on foot? I'm in a vehicle. I'm in a Prius, um, a 2010 Prius, with the doors locked. But he won't, he hasn't opened the door. I rang the doorbell and everything. I begged him to let me in. Elizabeth, please listen to my questions. What color is the Toyota Prius? Gray. Dark gray. All right. We'll have somebody look for you there. Okay. How long will it be? I don't know, ma'am. They have to respond to emergency, life-threatening situations first. The first available deputy... Well, this could be life-threatening. He went to court on Wednesday, and he he didn't get his kids back. And this is really... I'm I'm afraid for their lives. Okay, has he threatened the lives of the children previously? I have no idea. All right, we'll have the first available deputy contact you. Thank you.
I got it. Sorry. Just a minute. And people are saying there's not somebody here, but I was just there, and there is somebody here. There's two little boys in the house, and there was, they're five and seven, and there's an adult man. He has supervised visitation, and he blew up the house and the kids. The kids and the husband and the father were in the house? Yeah, yes. He slammed the door in my face. So I kept knocking. I thought it was a mistake. I kept knocking, and then I called 911. You saw him go back into the house when the flame, right before the flame? He didn't ever leave the house. He just opened the door. The kids were, kids were one step ahead of me. They're five and seven. They were one step ahead of me, and he slammed the door in my face. And you think he might have done this intentionally? Yes. And are you in your car? I was in my car. I'm standing outside it right now. Okay. Is that your home? Is that your home address? No, that's not my home. Okay. Yes, I was a supervised visitation coordinator. I picked the children up. What is that person's name? His name is Josh Powell. Just a minute, the sheriff's here. Let okay. me tell him the Go ahead and talk. In the house. Go ahead and talk to the officer, ma'am. So, after one of the most aggravating 911 calls I believe I have ever heard. You ever want to pull your hair out more um, in regards to a 911 call? Jesus. But after that call and a very short investigation, it was found that Josh had planned all of this. There was a gas can found near the bodies that had been full of gas and another had been dumped all throughout the house. Josh had killed himself and taken his boys with him. What's even more disturbing is the fact that when the boys' autopsies were done, it was found that they had died before the fire had even started. They had suffered chop injuries to their heads, and a hatchet was found beside Josh's remains. Authorities notified Steve about the loss of his son and grandchildren, as he was in jail at the time it happened. At that point, Steve invoked his Fifth Amendment right and refused to cooperate anymore in the Susan Powell case. Then, just almost exactly a year later, Steve's other son, Michael, would also meet his end. Michael jumped to his death in Minnesota, where he was attending college. It's believed that Michael knew what happened to Susan, as he was the one Josh enlisted to help kill-slash-hide Susan. Then, after seeing how guilt overcame and was the end of Josh, Michael could no longer cope and took his own life out of the guilt he felt over losing his nephews and brother. But no one knows for sure. Steve served his time in prison and was released in 2017. He died in 2018, and with him, the truth about Susan also died, as Steve was the last person to have any clues regarding this case. Susan's family eventually won $98 million lawsuit against Washington State for neglect in the way they handled the boys' case. Dave Cauley, host of the podcast Cold, goes into the deep detail about the Powells and the events surrounding them. It is amazingly detailed and includes interviews with many of the people involved. Please check it out if you want to know every nook and cranny of this case. Much of Josh and Steve's journals are discussed in the podcast, along with inserts from Susan's own personal journals. Susan's remaining family deserves to be able to reunite their daughter with her sons 
and hopefully one day they will find her and bring her home to rest with them. So that is the strange and unsolved and unexplained case of Susan Powell. Leaves us with far more questions than answers, but I think overall we have a pretty good idea of what happened to Susan and what happened inside that family altogether. The internal corruption and and just perverted nature that this family grew up with, the indecencies that were taken with small children and uh, with no consent given, this was a recipe for disaster. I think moving forward, this was this was a time bomb waiting to happen, this family. So that's my opinion, and I've laid down the basics, laid down the facts. You guys have got to hear some... Um, a little bit of the amazing audio that is out there on this case. Like I said, guys, if you want to hear everything, and I strongly urge you to listen with caution, um, because some of these diaries, these uh, video diaries, these diaries that are, are read, these transcripts are very disturbing. And it, and it can be very hard to read at times. But if you guys do want to dive down into the rabbit hole that is the case of Susan Powell, please check out Cold Podcast. There's nothing better out there, nothing more thorough than that show. Except for maybe Lauren's synopsis, right? So you can only get that in one place. And that's right here on Strange and Unexplained. Speaking of, let's see what that fella has to say this week. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren's synopsis, breaking down the case like, breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren's synopsis, breaking down the case like, breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren's synopsis, breaking down the case like, breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. What's up, people? Lauren here, here to get my thoughts on this week's Strange and Unexplained. The disappearance of Susan Powell, who in December of 2009, at the age of 28, up and disappeared, um, never to be seen again. It's been nearly 11 years. Uh, it'll be 11 years in December since she disappeared. She was a loving mother of two boys and in a marriage with a man named Josh Powell, who was a well-known, possessive, abusive person with some real issues. And a lot of those issues stem from the fact that he was raised by his father, Stephen Powell, who was a world-class creep, and began displaying this behavior for his boys at a young age, began sharing pornography with them when they were young teens, um, taught them no limits uh, on their behaviors. And as a teenager, Josh started acting out himself, allegedly killing animals, um, small animals, um, and even attempted suicide at least on one occasion, uh, one occasion, and even threatened his mother with a knife when he was young. He had some real issues, Josh Powell, and a lot of those, as I mentioned, were brought on by his father. I think there was some genetic problem with, with the Powells, the male side of them, and also the behavior that the father showed the you know, young Josh just really created a problem of a human being. And the brother, Michael, also seemed to have issues because he clearly helped cover up Susan Powell's murder. He he 
was an accomplice to Josh in Josh's wife, Susan's murder, in my opinion. There's so much circumstantial evidence that proves that Josh killed Susan Powell in December of 2009. It's, it's unbelievable to me that the police didn't go ahead and file murder charges. I think they had enough to go to trial just on circumstantial evidence alone. If I'm on a jury and you present everything I know about this case, as far as like what, you know, Susan's disappearance and all of Josh's odd behavior, uh, we'll go through some of it. The fact that Susan Powell le supposedly left her purse and her keys at the house when she disappeared. If she ran off with some dude like Josh was supposing, she wouldn't have left her purse and her keys there. And how did her cell phone end up in your vehicle? Her cell phone was known to be in Josh's vehicle. He, the night she disappears, he just up and takes his kids, his two boys, who are young, on a camping trip, spur of the moment when he has work in the morning, when it's December in northern Utah and it's freezing cold outside, you're just going to, oh, let's go on a spur of the moment camping trip on the night your mother disappears. Then there's the wet spot on the carpet uh, with a blood spot next to that that was proven to be Susan Powell's. Um, it's really quite amazing how much circumstantial evidence there is. Um, the boys also then said that mommy's dead, um, that she was in the trunk of a car, which turned out to be, it seems, Michael's car, Josh's brother, um, which was then ditched, and the police had to go find at a freaking, uh, at a, uh, in a junkyard, and they were able to find evidence that there was a, you know, a dead body in that trunk. Just there was not enough DNA, unfortunately, because it had been, like, destroyed, um, and then you find out that there was a five year term life insurance policy put out on Susan by Josh in the years prior, a five year, who gets a five year life insurance policy for $500,000 on their spouse. Who's only 28 years old. Like my wife is 30 right now. The idea that you know, I'd get a life insurance policy on her for five fucking years that's very suspicious to me. Like, I, I don't think she's going to make it to 35 years old, or in this case, Josh didn't think she was going to make it to her early 30s. That makes it look to me like there's just endless amounts of circumstantial evidence here that I'm just surprised they let him walk the streets, that they didn't, you know, take this to trial with what they had, because I don't think there's any jury that wouldn't convict this guy. When you look at his criminal history uh, with women, and then you just look at all this evidence that's here, it's amazing that they didn't put him up. I, I just, it frustrates me because then you find out what goes on to happen. So a little bit more on Josh's father, Stephen. he was super obsessed with Susan Powell. Um, they, they lived with him. Um, Josh and Susan lived with their father, with Josh's father, Stephen, and he was constantly videotaping Susan as well as many other women, but he had a, just an absolute obsession and he filmed himself. Some of the videos of him talking to himself on camera about how obsessed he was with Susan are just so creepy. I don't know what was wrong with this father and son, and I have a feeling the brother Michael was had a lot of the same issues. Um, man, it's just, it's so creepy. It's so creepy how obsessed with his uh, daughter-in-law that he was. That just crosses so many boundaries. Um, and then, so like I said, the police don't charge Josh for the murder of his wife, as they should have, in my opinion. And then, of course, what does he go on to do? He goes on to take his life along with his sons. He takes his two innocent sons out with him when, when a uh, 
social worker comes to do a supervised visit uh, so he could see his kids. He locked her outside, pulled the kids in, and burned the house down with them inside and used a hatchet to uh, attempt to kill them before the smoke got them. And it's just, it, it was one of the worst things I've heard in true crime that that day that he did that, that it just the idea that you could do that to your two children, uh, it's, I don't understand it at all. I don't understand when parents are, are capable of killing their children. You know, you think of Chris Watts and there's, there's been, it's happened time and time again. And it always blows my mind that someone could, it's like animals, some animals do that, but even most animals would never do that, would never kill their young. You know, it just, it's about the worst thing that a human being can do. And there was just something seriously wrong with, uh, with the, the males in the Powell family. And now they're, they're all gone. The father went to jail because a bunch of, uh, pornography was found on his computer. A lot of, uh, video of women that he was taking with them not consenting to it. Uh, the guy basically spent his whole life, Josh's father, Stephen, spent his whole life, uh, as a voyeur, just obsessing over women that he could never have. Um, it's pretty sad. Um, and then the brother, Michael ended up killing himself. Um, he was clearly uh, a part of Susan's murder in my opinion. So I could care less about him. Um, it sucks that he didn't go to prison, you know, but glad he's gone. Glad all three of these fuckers are gone. And, uh, it's, it was a tough one to study. Um, and I don't think there's really any mystery to it. I just think they were, you know, bad seeds. You know, the father taught these boys to be sick like him and maybe they were already genetically disposed to be that way or predisposed to be that way. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, I don't know what more I could say. Susan, sadly, I think her body is at the bottom of a mine shaft in Utah because apparently, um, Josh had talked about that to people before that that's where he would dispose of a body if he ever killed someone. So, uh, it sounds like that camping trip that night, he had killed her at the house, put her in the trunk of the car with his boys, took her body up to a mine shaft somewhere, threw it down and then did this little fake camping trip before going on with his act. And I just wish that they would have, you know, charged him with the murder of his wife and then the boys would still be alive right now. But that's my thoughts. Hope you guys enjoyed it. See you next week. All right, Lauren, thank you for that. Excellent synopsis as always. Also, great information about Josh and Michael Powell's childhood there. Didn't know about um, Josh's serial killer tendencies as a child. So that leans a lot to him being guilty, if you weren't already uh, leaning that way, obviously. So, like Lauren said, this was a this was a hard case to study. This was a hard case to digest. Um, and I don't really think there's much more we could put out there. I just... The main reason I wanted to do this case was just to expose um, these men and the Powell family for who they are. They shouldn't get to die without justice, and I mean, they did, and they took what at least three innocent lives with them. Um, and then some could even argue that the boys, Josh and Michael, are innocent in this, and Steve is the twisted ma mastermind behind all of this that destroyed all of them at a young age. But either way, uh, like Lauren said, not a lot of mystery to this one. It's pretty cut and dry. I think you can uh, sleep at night knowing how what happened in this case. Uh, not that it makes it any easier to digest. So that's it, guys. That's the case of Susan Powell. And um, I guess we'll get into some housekeeping. 
Um, if you haven't already, please check out patreon.com slash podcast. Number one way to support this show, especially in these early stages. I've only been doing this show since April, so we're still kind of getting our legs, still kind of getting the format, um, still working on Patreon and things like that, always trying to improve and uh, evolve the show. So I'd like to thank the new members every week. This week, uh, I'd like to thank Lauren Beams for jumping on at the $3 level on patreon.com slash podcast. Um, thank you so much. Anybody that joins Patreon will get early releases of every episode on the Thursday before, whereas free episodes are typically released on Mondays, as you know. And also you'll get access to two other shows that I do, called Strain, one called Strange Shorts and one called The Palette Cleanser that I occasionally do. So uh, there's lots of content under True Crime Guys Productions. Guys, if you haven't checked out my other podcast, True Crime Guys, that I do with my good friend Lauren, who you just heard in the synopsis, um, it's a more laid-back, conversational-style crime podcast. You can find that wherever you listen. Also, patreon.com slash truecrimeguys um, for all of the content there. Also, another great way to help the show is leave a review. Whether you listen on iTunes, um, Stitcher, uh, Podcast Addict, Apple Podcast, if you're able to leave a review, please do. It helps others find podcast it helps others get a review of the show and what they might expect and whatnot and it overall helps grow the show and also you'll get a shout out right so nothing to lose there um merch right strange and unexplained merch you can go to truecrimeguys.threadless.com there is a link below the description of this episode and most episodes well from the time that i created the merch site but you can Go on, when you go to truecrimeguys.threadless.com, you click. You can click the strange and unexplained design, and there are tons of things that you can get that design on, including hoodies, sweatshirts, t-shirts, uh, different cut t-shirts, stickers, mugs, masks for COVID, anything you want, you can show your strange and unexplained pride and uh, yeah, show off some pretty cool swag that way. Also, guys, check me out on social media at SNDU Podcast. Instagram, Twitter, Strange and Unexplained on Facebook. Give us a follow. Give us a like. Uh, shoot me a case suggestion on there. You can DM me or tag me in a story or a post, whatever. I'll find it. Okay? All else fails, sandupodcast at gmail.com. You guys can send all of your complaints and requests there. Okay? All right, guys. Well, until next week, be strange, just don't be a stranger.